0: Bringing a cell or gene therapy to market is an art. Hear Veristat thought leaders as they draw on their specialized expertise to offer insight on timely, relevant clinical development topics. Welcome to Art Podcasts, Advancing Revolutionary Therapies, a podcast presented by the Center of Excellence for Cell and Gene Therapies at Veristat. Today's podcast will be a clip of key insights from our recent webinar, on the future landscape of cell and gene therapies given by Ewan Campbell, Advanced Therapy and Biotech Director at Veristat. Here Ewan provide an historical recap of the approved cell and gene therapy treatments over the past decade, along with insights on where we are headed. If you'd like to listen to the webinar in its entirety, please search our knowledge base at veristat.com. Just to
1: start with the the historical approvals of, in gene and cell therapy. This is not meant to be a comprehensive list, but it's a list of some of the more significant highlights. So the first approval was back in 2009, which is the ChondroSelect product by Tgenix, which was an autologous cell therapy for cartilage disease. Then in 2012, we had Glybera, which was manufactured by AMD, now known as Unicure, and that was an adeno-associated virus, an AAV1 was used in vivo for the treatment of lipoprotein lipase deficiency. And this was the first gene therapy approved in Europe. It was administered by injection into the leg. The product wasn't incorporated into the nucleus, and the patients had to have immunosuppression. Another study I had a number of firsts or a pivotal study. So we used a central site model, which was a site in Chicoutimi, in Quebec. We had a lipid challenge to demonstrate the effectiveness of the product, and we didn't have a classic R. CT, but each patient became their own control. Then in 2013, Genzyme had approval of product Macy, which is matrix-applied chondrocytes. This was an autologous product and was the first combined advanced therapy medicinal product. We had autologous cells in a porcine collagen membrane, which was the device component. Then in 2016, um, Bloodworks got um, approval for the uh, hemopinetic progenitor cells. This was an cell therapy. Then in 2016, Orchard Therapeutics got an approval for Strimvelis. Again, this was an autologous treatment using a retroviral vector. The treatment of ADA SCID, so it was for patients with a mutation to their gene that made that the DMNA sensor. And this was the first ex vivo autologous gene therapy that was approved. Then in 2017, Fartis got approval for Chimura, which was the first CAR-T product, and that was the first product which treated acute lymphoblastic leukemia and was the first gene therapy to be approved by the FDA. Then in 2018, um, Takeda um, got EU approval for their allogeneic stem cell therapy for Crohn's disease and this product got a a regenerative medicine advanced therapy designation from the FDA and was actually approved in Japan last month. Then moving on to 2018, Spark Therapeutics product. Lux-Turner, which was an AAV2 in vivo product, um, got approval, and this was the first in vivo gene therapy approved by the FDA. Interestingly, it wasn't a cure for eyesight, but it did significantly improve the eyesight of the patient. And in 2019, we saw the first, the second approval from Novartis uh, of Solgemsa and this was an AAV9 in vivo one-time intravenous infusion used to treat spinal muscular atrophy. Then in 2019 bluebird got their first approval for a gene therapy, by Integlo. And again this was an autologous treatment using lentiviral vector and treated patients with transfusion dependent beta thalassemia. This product previously got a breakthrough designation by the FDA. In 2020 we saw the second Orcher Therapeutics product, the that was again an autologous product using a lentiviral vector for treating patients with metachromatic leukodystrophy. Then more recently in 2021, we saw the second approval for Bluebird bio of their product Dysona, an autologous treatment using as antiviral vector, and it's treated 3-ball three dystrophy and had previously had organ drug designation. So just moving on now to the, the next slide, which is really looking at you know, where we are going in the area of gene and cell therapy. I think one of the things that we do know is that there is a vast potential for this sort of product, um, depending on who you believe. 25,000 human genes, but still there's 6,000 of those genes. We don't actually know what they do. Some of the new technology coming through in Citilink is obviously gene editing technology, such as that being developed by CRISPR Therapeutics and Intelia, which is a CRISPR-Cas9 technology, which you can use both ex-vivo and in vivo. Other important developments are universal donor technologies for cells. So we've got induced pluripotent stem cells, hemopoietic away from the autologous <laughs> products to the allergenic products because with autologous products you can only get scale out, you can't get scale up. So if you imagine with autologous products, we really have one large factory with very many smaller patient-specific units, which are often BSEs, and that makes the product very expensive. Also, you have increased regulatory burden. Quite often, there's also a tissue authority, as well as a drug authority involved in the process. And then move towards a more um, antigenic model, we will get true scale-up. Other issues with the product or products remain obviously immunogenicity, where patients often have to go on to immunosuppression, and in the COVID era, we've seen how that increased the risk to the subject. We're looking at modifying capsids to reduce their immunogenicity, and also looking at nanoparticle delivery. Also, we have a lot of technology to look at placing mutant genes, but also we can look at replacing the regulatory gene. So if you have a mutant gene that makes an enzyme that's 10% effective, if you can upregulate regulate it 10 times, then you can affect the disease in a different way. So I think we'll see increased complexity in different products as we go forward. One of the other issues is always going to be competition for rare disease patients. By their very nature, these sort of technologies have been used on rare diseases, and we see multiple companies looking at beta thalassemia or sickle cell disease, which often is one of the most prevalent genetic diseases. But we have got more and more competition. And also the regulatory environment has changed significantly, I think, since 2009. And that will continue to change as products come online. Mm. And as we've seen, technology has really moved at lightning speed over the last 20 years or so. Another issue, obviously, we have is the constraints of manufacturing. Again, probably exacerbated by the pandemic. But we have more and more companies looking for the same source materials from a limited number of suppliers. And we're going to, as things product's going to market, have more and more competition between clinical trials and in market supply. And then the next question, I think, for where we're going is, what diseases are we going to treat? We're pretty much towards the rare end of the, uh, the spectrum, but there are other diseases that we could possibly treat with this technology.
0: Don't miss an episode. Subscribe on your favorite podcast player and look for our other Cell & Gene podcasts at cellandgene.expert.